Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, The Price of Victory, with a message titled, The High Cost of Love. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 to 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We live in a world where we all know that we should be paying professionals for their service. Whether it's a doctor, a lawyer, a plumber, or an auto mechanic, we all know that goods and services don't come to us out of mere goodwill. It is right and fitting that we pay people for their services. But when we pay for things, along with the payment we give, comes an expectation of excellence. I mean, imagine the following scenario. Your car is having some difficulties, and you've got a buddy who's an amateur mechanic. And he says, hey, why not drag that car down to my house? We'll put it in my garage, and we'll have a look at it together. And so you do. You actually spend about three Saturdays working on the car. Well, you bring him coffee and lunch and even go out to buy your buddy a tool that you notice he's missing. You know, it's all part of a great friendship and camaraderie. But now imagine that in the end, you just can't fix the car. Your buddy has tried his level best. It was beyond him. How do you feel about your buddy? Well, I suspect you're not angry at him. I mean, after all, it really didn't cost you anything. And besides, it was all a part of friendship. Had the car been fixed, it would have been a bonus over on top of the rich time you spent together. Now, let's try to replay that scene, shall we? Let's assume your car doesn't work and you take it to the dealership where you bought it. The mechanic has an hourly rate and every hour he spends on your car is going to add up very quickly. Your attitude toward the professional is going to be very different from your attitude toward the guy who did it for free. There's a level of expectation that rises dramatically when you're dealing with someone who receives money for services. Now, I will now make a statement that's going to surprise nobody. The same is true in the pastoral ministry. Compare the paid pastor with a lay pastor. The level of expectation rises dramatically once we pay for services. But so also is the level of criticism that comes for services rendered. Lay pastors are almost never criticized or held to account on the same level as those who get paid. It is this that has led some to argue that we shouldn't have full-time paid pastors in the first place. I mean, after all, the pastor loses his freedom. He's now beholden to not only the expectations of others, but in most cases, he's held accountable to the expectations of those who have given the most to support the services. A lay pastor on the other hand, is free from that kind of manipulation and pressure. Well, that's true, and there's no need in arguing about it. However, it should also be noted that paying for a full-time pastor, well, it's biblical. 1 Corinthians 9, 11 to 12 says, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Notice how Paul makes his case. I've sown spiritual things, and as a result, I have the right to gain a wage for it. Other people are rightfully doing that, and then Paul says, if they have the right, I've got a greater right. It's because Paul planted that church. He had served that church in a way that the others hadn't. Of course, what's also a part of this passage is Paul's statement that he had chosen not to take a wage from the Corinthians. So why? And we're going to come back to that question. But now let's keep reading our 1 Corinthians passage, 
1 Corinthians 9, 13 to 14 says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That is, Paul says, it's the Lord's command. Those who preach the gospel should make a living in that way. And all we need to do is think about it. Paying a pastor allows that pastor to be properly trained, to understand the original languages of the text, to get tools for the work, to spend at least two days a week reading through the text, getting the grammar right, understanding the background of a text, carefully making application in a way that properly reflects what God is saying, and also then to preach it in such a way that people will understand their Bible and therefore understand what God's saying to their lives. Paid pastoral ministry is a blessing from God. That's not to say that there aren't problems with it. And I have already mentioned those key issues, you know, such as a lack of freedom. The latter parts of 2 Corinthians are all about Paul's battle with the false teachers for the hearts of a minority in that church who've still not repented and abandoned the false teachers. And Paul writes this letter to the entire church so that everyone would be aware of the nature of the struggle and so that the false teachers would lose all foothold in the church. It seems that one of the areas of conflict was that Paul refused to take a salary while he was in Corinth. And it wasn't that the church couldn't afford to pay him. Corinth was a fairly wealthy city, and by all accounts, the church of Jesus was shielded from the persecution that Christians in the north of Greece would have encountered. That would mean that you would expect that the wealth of the average Corinthian Christian probably would have approximated the wealth of the average citizen in Corinth, which means that paying the pastor was not a difficulty. And furthermore, by all indications, the false teachers in Corinth had drawn a salary from the church. And the fact that they were paid and Paul was not made it look like they were the professionals and Paul was the amateur. I mean, given false teachers' reason for boasting, well, you can almost imagine how they played that matter up. And so in this battle with the false teachers, it is this, the battle over his salary, or shall we say the lack of it, that Paul will have to deal with next. So I'm reading 2 Corinthians 11, 7-9. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So Paul begins by asking a question. Do you think it was a sin that I humbled myself when I preached the gospel to you without receiving a salary? And at the outset, that might be a strange thing to say. But when we think about it, we might say, well, I think I know what he's getting at. You see, he's less concerned with the the matter of receiving a salary, and he's more concerned with the matter of humbling himself. After all, the impression would be that the man who receives no salary, well, he's not a professional. Well, that's true. More than one historian has pointed out that the Greek-speaking world considered affluence to be a sign of worth. You know, one historian commented this issue was particularly important in an affluent city like Corinth, whose citizens took pride in its wealth and aspired to upward mobility. Wealth was a prerequisite for honor. 
and poverty was a badge of disgrace. Now, that attitude shouldn't be hard for moderns to understand. You know, movie stars, sports stars, musicians, people who lead large companies, all those people have wealth. Millions admire them. As for the person who can hardly make ends meet, no one is lining up to find out the secrets of their success. And so let's listen to Paul's question again. Do you think I committed a sin when I didn't command a top wage and instead I humbled myself so that I didn't look impressive to the citizens in Corinth nor in your church? You think that was a mistake? Did that give the impression that both my leadership and the gospel that I preached wasn't that important? Perhaps you might think, says Paul, I should have done it the other way around. You know, gave all the trappings of, you know, the modern televangelist with private planes and yachts and expensive houses and expensive jewels hanging from my wrist and wearing clothing that communicates that, look, I'm really important. Is that what you think I should have done? And then in order to explain further what he's done, he comments that he robbed other churches. Of course, he's not saying that he absconded with their funds. He means to say he received an offering from the Christians in Macedonia so that he might serve in Corinth. Please get a hold of what's being said here. Paul received a salary from very poor, hard-pressed Christians in Macedonia, Christians who were being persecuted for their faith, in order to serve the relatively well-off Christians in Corinth. I don't know how that played in Corinth. I mean, I suspect that that once that had become known, well, it might even be considered an insult. I mean, if you'd been a member in the church in Corinth, how would you have reacted once you heard that news? Perhaps you would have inquired, and then you would have found out, yeah, no, no, the church did offer to pay Paul's salary, but he refused to accept the money. And notice further, Paul says, and I was with you when I was in need. I don't know what need he's referring to, but clearly he was just scraping to get by. And then Paul says, not only did I not take a salary, I refused one in the future. Well now, what do we make of that? For anyone seeking to know God or to understand the Bible and how it can be applied to your daily life, Back to the Bible Canada provides trustworthy Bible teaching resources addressing relevant questions of life and faith. If you believe in the importance of sharing the Word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month. Or consider even becoming a member of our 1119 Fellowship, our monthly giving program. Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program you're hearing right now is heard in your community and across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. To send a one-time gift or to become an 1119 monthly partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. It might have been that some of the Christians living in Corinth really did come to the conclusion that Paul had sinned when he refused a salary from them. But Paul had something to say in response. He's going to explain his reasoning to them, and might I say, once we catch on to what he was doing, it's fascinating. But before he explains why he was doing what he was doing, there's an explanation that he feels compelled to give. 2 Corinthians 11:10 10 to 11. 
as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. See, the boasting Paul is speaking about here is the boast that he refused to take a salary. Now, in this regard, we do need to provide a note of explanation. Remember, he has already made the case that he has the right to be supported. But please also don't read what Paul is saying as if he never took any money from the Corinthians. In fact, he did, and he's not shy to admit it. Go back all the way to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 5 and 6. There, Paul's quite free with what he needs. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. And then just to reiterate that same point, listen to what he says when he repeats it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. And so don't hear Paul is saying, look, you guys are such an unruly crew over there in Corinth. I refuse to even take a dime from you boys. He's not saying that at all. He's looking for them to support his ministry, only he's being very specific. That support is not going to include a salary. Again, we're left to scratch our heads. I mean, you might hear some of the people in Corinth wondering why he takes money for a salary from Macedonia, where the believers are giving to Paul out of their poverty. And here he is in Corinth, and he won't accept a salary. And Paul says, I've been making a boast that I didn't take a salary from you, and I've been talking it up in all the regions of Achaia. Now, if your geography of the region isn't that good, let me help. Corinth is a city that is located in the province of Achaia. That is, says Paul, all around your region, I've been proudly making it clear that I didn't take a salary from you. Again, we're forced to remember that Paul spent a full 18 months in that city, and I have to assume that the matter of a salary came up more than once. And then in the confusion around this, Paul adds a note. You think I did this because I didn't love you? Ha ha, now we come to the heart of the matter. Now, you might remember a story that comes to us all the way back from the time of Abraham. Abraham has just returned home after he's rescued his nephew Lot from four kings who have raided his area, and they've taken away a treasure. In a daring night raid, Abraham suddenly came upon these kings with a small fighting force of only 318 men. Catching them by surprise, he utterly defeated them, and he rescued his nephew from a sure life of slavery, and he also captured all the booty these kings had taken from the surrounding region. And the king of Sodom is delighted. He was one of the victims of the attack. And Abraham is bringing Sodom's possessions back to them. And so the king of Sodom offers to pay Abraham a wealthy finder's fee. And to that, Abraham responds, I won't even keep a sandal strap that belongs to you, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. You know, Abraham knew that the king of Sodom was a wicked man. And we might think, is that what Paul thought as well? I won't take a penny of salary lest this cantankerous church should boast we paid Paul's salary. Paul asks, do you think that I refused the salary from you because I despised you or because I didn't love you? And then he adds, God knows how deeply, deeply I love you. 
I'm not ashamed to be identified with you. You're my children whom I want to Christ. My heart loves you deeply. We're now one family together. I long to be identified with the church in Corinth. Well, now, having established that there was no nefarious reason for refusing a salary, we're still left to scratch our heads. I mean, if he loves them that deeply, and if he's not afraid to let them know of his personal needs, and if he longs to be identified with them, and in fact, he even boasts about them to others, why not take a salary? And hasn't he given the false teachers a platform then for suggesting that he's a lesser apostle? You know, after all, he's, he's not a professional. You see, Paul needs an explanation. So let's go back to verse 9. Do you notice that Paul uses the word burden? He says, I did not burden anyone. See, that word refers to financial and social dependence. And in the ancient world, that word often spoke of a concept which we now know as the concept of a patronage. Gifts are accepted, and the one who received the gifts would then be in some kind of a debtor relationship to the giver. So the one who gave had some kind of a power over the one who received. And here's what we find in Paul's ministry. He refused a salary everywhere for that very reason. However, he did receive financial assistance after he had left a given place. He would accept support from a church to advance the gospel in another region. So in this way, every church could participate in missions in advancing the gospel where it had never been heard before. And in the process, the one who gave would enter into a partnership with Paul to advance the gospel in another place. And with that information as background, let's go to the next verse in our passage, that is verse 12. Paul says, And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. (laughs) Ha ha, now we can see what Paul's doing. The false teachers are saying, look, we're working on the same terms as Paul. We have the same authority as he does. We have the same arrangement as he has. And we should be listened to with the same respect that Paul has. And Paul says, no, no, you have nothing in common with me. The only money that I'm receiving is from churches who are interested in taking the gospel to other people. So this is expensive for Paul. He's often persecuted in new locations. He's often forced to explain the gospel to people who might view him with hostility. And the whole reason for support is to make missions possible. On the other hand, Paul says to the false teachers, you know, you show up to make a living in a place where you come. The church is already established and you feed on the groundwork that I've laid down. I didn't receive a salary, you did. And that was Paul's reasoning he would refuse a salary from a fairly well-off church so that in the future, when these false teachers would show up, and they inevitably did, he was ready to undercut them before they even got going. No one but no one would confuse Paul with them. So can you see what Paul is up to? And in making this statement, it costs him plenty. You know, Paul's saying, look, I know that my salary was meager when I was with you, It was all those poor Macedonians could afford, but I was glad for everything they gave, and I was even happier that this arrangement undercut the false teachers. When I read this, I'm really overwhelmed with Paul's wisdom. 
And I'm also overwhelmed with Paul's willingness to make the sacrifices required so that the gospel might increase. His methodology makes sense to me, and the outcome is successful. It becomes clear that no matter the price that Paul will have to pay, he'll gladly pay it so that false teachers don't have an opportunity to get an inroad. However, says Paul, no one can say the same thing about the false apostles. Let's listen to how he completes this section, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So here's what Paul is saying. Look, these guys are frauds. These men wear disguises. Of course, that's in accordance with Satan. He also wears disguises, but their end is coming. And that brings the matter home. It reinforces that Paul has done something the false teachers can't do. They wear disguises all they want, but when it comes down to sacrificing themselves for the sake of the people of God, that's where the disguises fall off and they're exposed. If it costs Paul everything to do that, he'll gladly pay it. That's the price for the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11:7 to 15 teaches us that if we're going to lead God's people, if we're going to truly love God's people, we're going to have to pay a price. That shouldn't surprise us. Jesus did the same. But that's the high cost of love. Thanks so much, John. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, it seems to me that the actions of a false teacher should be in stark contrast to one really sold out for the gospel. Shouldn't they be pretty obvious? Well, they, yeah, that's a good question, Ben. I mean, sometimes, you know, it is obvious. Uh, there are other times it's less so. Um, and it's, uh, however, I, I would say that there is a general tendency in those that are teaching the true gospel, if they truly are. And if they're living in the true gospel, that they move towards humility and that those who are um, teaching a false gospel and they do it often for uh, very self-serving reasons, um, that there is a lack of humility in what they're doing. So uh, in some ways that can be seen, but that's somewhat subjective. And so still we need to appeal to the truth in the end of the day. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Price of Victory, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This month, Dr. Neufeld will continue his video series, The Missionary God which airs weekly on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. We believe these messages are so important for believers that we want to send you the expanded message series on CD for free. We'll explore questions like, why is it that God can allow so much suffering in the world? And why has God commanded us to make disciples of all nations? There are so many challenging questions, and though they may make us feel uncomfortable at times, they require Bible-focused responses. So join us this month on air, online, via podcast, or listen on the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. Don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of this important series, 
by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.